Today's episode of Green Seas is made possible by our sponsor, Bureau Veritas, your partner in shaping a better maritime world. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante Martin, and today we're going to talk about shipping's new carbon tax, the EU emissions trading system. Last week, the European Parliament President, Roberta Metzola, stood before reporters to talk about a legislative achievement. The House today just voted on key pieces of legislation that are part of the Fit for 55 package. Our plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55% by 2030. We can all be proud today's vote was really historic. What she was talking about is a package of laws and regulations that have been working their way through the EU's main bodies that aim to slash greenhouse gas emissions. And part of what was approved last week was folding shipping into the EU's emissions trading system starting in 2024. But trading is only part of what this is about. That's because it's effectively a tax on the shipping industry's greenhouse gas emissions. Shipping companies will have to buy carbon credits known as allowances for their emissions on voyages within the EU and between the 27-nation bloc and other parts of the world. The Parliament's approval brought plaudits from the shipping industry. In addition to bringing certainty after years of legislative process, the emissions trading scheme will funnel some of the revenue back into projects to support shipping's decarbonization. And it will enshrine the polluter pays principle, meaning that the commercial operators who decide how ships trade will be required to foot the bill for the carbon allowances. And it drew positive reactions from environmental groups. Faye Gabasov is Program Director for Shipping Policy at Transport Environment, and he's focused on two recent pieces of legislation. In addition to the emissions trading approval, the European Parliament also reached a March agreement with the EU Executive Branch, the European Commission, on a law known as Fuel EU Maritime. This legislation is aimed at requiring emissions reductions and promoting green fuels. So if you think of these laws as kind of pieces of the puzzle, uh, one piece is namely the fuel maritime, trying to kind of uh, create predictable demand and predictable uptake of alternative sustainable fuels by shipping industry. ETS was designed um, um, to kind of create efficiencies in the system by increasing the cost of, uh, you know, using dirty fuel to make them uh, improve um, their operations, to make them more efficient, use their vessels more efficiently, and over time buy more and more efficient vessels. So kind of the one is the efficiency aspect, the other one is the fuel aspect of it. But obviously ETS, uh, whether it will uh, incentivize the efficiency that we are talking about, it remains to be seen because there are so many other factors that will be at play and uh, that um, increasing carbon costs might not do the trick. But today, we want to look ahead at what shipping needs to do to prepare for joining the EU emissions trading regime. James Ash is head of the Environmental Markets Desk at Simpson Spence Young, or SSY, a London-based shipbroker, where he helps shipping clients with voluntary and mandatory carbon credits. He told me that the biggest thing for shipping companies to prepare is working out their route to the carbon allowances market. On one route, they can start trading on the futures market. 
on the other, to buy carbon allowances for voyages to, from, and within the EU, shipping companies will have to set up accounts with registries in EU member states to hand in the allowances that they buy. I've been speaking to various registries, and it's going to take one to three months to actually set a registry account up. So my advice would be get a registry account set up as soon as you can so you are ready for January the 1st in 2024. One of the things those shipping companies will have to consider is pricing. Over the last year, the price of carbon allowances has swung wildly, topping 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide in some instances and sinking as far down as 65. But in general, they've been on an upward trajectory. That momentum appears likely to continue. That's partly because over time, the number of carbon allowances available in the market reduces. I think the market's going higher. It is a pure supply and demand market. And there's many factors within it. Now, we've seen uh, the new policies been implemented from 2018 uh, all the way through to now, including shipping shipping coming into the system. Now, the whole idea behind the market is a, is a cap and trade market. So there are only a certain amount of uh, allowances within the system. So the idea behind it is that you're adding you're adding new you're adding new entrants to the market going forward as of 2026 they're going to start reducing the amount of free allowances they give to certain installations in Europe. So you're reducing the amount that's within the system but you're increasing the amount of entrants who need to be coming to market who are polluting so need to buy the permits to pollute. And Ash said Shipping is a small piece of the EU emissions trading puzzle. That means it will largely be the demand from bigger industries like power that drive the price fluctuations, as well as policy from Brussels. So how is a shipping company to navigate those pricing dynamics? Some will stick to purchasing on the spot market for carbon allowances. Others will hedge their positions, and some will trade on the futures market. For Ash, waiting until carbon allowances must be handed in in 2025 may not be the best route. I think it's prudent to purchase your allowances as you go rather than wait to your wait to the compliance end of compliance period because who knows as we start in January 24 we could be trading 85 uh, 85 euros a ton um come a year later when they look to surrender their allowances and we come towards the end of the compliance period we could be trading 120 euros a ton so it would be prudent to to average if it's not a business you're looking at from a trading perspective if you're looking at purely from a compliance point of view lawyer Nick Walker is a partner at law firm Watson Farley and Williams, or WFW. He said he will be watching for guidance from the EU on how shipping companies will have to register with member states. He told me that there does not appear to be anything stopping a shipping company based in one country from setting up an account for their carbon credits with any EU country they choose. So it does throw up, particularly when you consider that alongside the, um, the the fact that member states will be keeping um, the majority of the revenues, whether there will now be kind of venue shopping in terms of where, where people choose to to comply. That's something that we're, we're looking to see. Andy said it's not clear that the various countries' registries may be set up for the kind of regular carbon credit purchasing that SSY's Ash suggests. Walker said that what shipping companies need to be doing now is reviewing their contracts for what's ahead. The Emissions Trading Directive allows the registries to recover costs from ship operators, and that's on top of the price of carbon allowances. I asked him if there's a risk for litigation in shipping. After all, the shipping company that has to register the allowances may be different from the commercial operator that has to pay for them. One uncertainty in the law, he said, is that it takes the form of a directive that's interpreted by member states rather than a regulation whose interpretation is led by Brussels. M. Walker said the risk with directives is that they can be enforced or implemented unevenly around the EU, so there could be higher standards in some countries than in others. 
most environmental regulation coming out of the EU in recent years has been done by regulation rather than by directive. And the reason for that is that they're usually very contentious and what they tend to find, what the commissioners tend to find, is that directives aren't very evenly transposed by member states or they're not transposed at all and therefore they have to start infraction proceedings against individual member states, which kind of delays or waters down the impact of, of the environmental regulation. This is a directive. And so we have to wait for it to be transposed by member states. Uh, and when that tends to happen, you get uneven um, transposition or you get certain member states gold plating the, the legislation so that you're required to meet much higher standards. And then the, the enforcement, again, is a matter for individual member states. So this kind of goes back again to whether you're likely to see venue shopping but Abbasov told me that he's not worried about the risk of uneven enforcement because he said the rules are centralized. There are heavy penalties for shipping companies that don't comply, in addition to having to pay for allowances in the following year that they failed to hand over the year before. Basically, they're getting a double whammy, right? If you didn't comply one year, next year you need to still back comply with it plus pay penalty. And if after a number of years, uh, I don't remember exactly the, the number of um, consecutive non-compliance years, the ship can be arrested. Not only that ship, but also other ships owned by the company, which were themselves compliant, but their you know, sister ship didn't comply with this regulation. So the enforcement system is fairly stringent. But ultimately, Transport and Environment sees the fuel EU maritime legislation as a more powerful tool to reduce shipping's climate impact than the emissions trading law. That's because it creates fuel standards that provide clear rules for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. By contrast, the emissions trading system may have an impact in cutting carbon, but it's indirect, and the cost of carbon credits may not bridge the gap with costlier green fuels. Fuel EU maritime is impactful because it's a command and control mechanism. You know, media and you know, in general policymakers tend to ignore command and control mechanisms and always like talking about taxes, you know, emissions charges and so on. But in reality, the most successful climate regulations have been the command and control mechanisms. The EU's latest moves on shipping emissions are throwing a gauntlet down for the International Maritime Organization. In July, the UN shipping regulator is scheduled to decide on a new decarbonization trajectory, with most nations calling for zero emissions, or net zero, by 2050. And it hopes to make progress on its own fuel standard and putting a price on greenhouse gas emissions. While many in shipping would like to see a global system and the European measures have a review mechanism built in, Abbasov does not see any eventual measures by the IMO that would persuade the EU to back down. He said the IMO and EU regulations will likely apply at the same time. In part, that's because Abbasov sees the IMO as unlikely to adopt a carbon price that's high enough for the EU to pull back its carbon allowance requirement. And then there's the revenue. Part of the EU shipping ETS money has already been spent. Member states recovering from COVID-19, you know, they borrowed money at the EU level and that money has to be paid back. And it's already the kind of ring fence part of it to pay back that money. And it's unlikely that, you know, they will give up this new source of revenue, given that all other sectors are already being, you know, taxed uh, for, for many reasons. Now that two environmental rules sought by NGOs are coming into view, I wanted to ask Abbasov what's next for groups like Transport and Environment. 
He told me that the group would like to see an energy efficiency mandate for shipping, which has been proposed in the parliament. That's because if emissions trading leads to efficiency gains, we'll only find out after the fact. And because amid the transition to expensive green fuels, the industry should be encouraged to boost efficiency to use less of those fuels. And he wants to see the EU adopt and improve on the IMO's carbon intensity indicator, a rule that grades ships based on their emissions per ton of cargo carried and distance traveled. So you have the ratings, right? A, B, C, D, E, and the C is the compliance, A, M, B is the overcompliance, D, N, E is under compliance, right? The ships just need to meet the C. But you can imagine a world that Europe says, hey, only A-rated ships are allowed to call on my ports. That means that the over-efficient, meaning the companies that over-meet, over-achieve the IMO standards is allowed. That means that the European trade becomes more efficient. At Tradewinds, we'll keep watching how these efforts unfold. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter checked in on efforts at the IMO to tackle plastics pollution at sea. At a subcommittee meeting in London, delegates debated measures for tackling nurdles, the plastic pellets that are sometimes lost at sea from container ships. This is Brian Wood Thomas, Vice President for Environmental Policy at the World Shipping Council, speaking on the floor of the IMO. Recognizing the nature and scope of the plastic pellet problem, the needed solutions require fundamental changes that alter storage, handling, and transportation norms across multiple modes and sectors. Marine accidents resulting in losses of plastic pellets clearly warrant explicit action in this organization. Delegates also discuss what to do about another source of plastics pollution, fishing gear that's lost overboard. Sign up for the newsletter at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Ava Leary, chief executive of NGO Opportunity Green, wrote a Viewpoint column in this week's Tradewinds, arguing that the International Maritime Organization must look at emissions from the full life cycle of fuels when considering shipping's greenhouse gas footprint in upcoming regulation. Alternative fuels are no silver bullet. They will only bring a climate benefit if they are produced in a sustainable way. This is why any regulation of international shipping which encourages the sector to switch fuels must look at the full life cycle of the fuels. If the regulation only considers the emissions on the ship, it will not drive the investment signal that the sector desperately needs to ensure the right fuels are produced. Unfortunately, the International Maritime Organization, shipping's global regulator, doesn't seem to understand this. There are countries in the IMO suggesting that not only should it just regulate the emissions from on board the ship, but also that the IMO doesn't have the legal ability to regulate the emissions from the full life cycle of the fuel. But Opportunity Green's new report, the IMO's legal remit on upstream fuel emissions, details how the IMO does indeed have the legal remit to regulate emissions from the full shipping life cycle, and also Bust the myth that there's any legal barrier in the IMO or Marpol conventions that would prevent this. We found that the IMO can regulate the upstream emissions of all shipping fuels and that such regulation is consistent with IMO objectives and purposes. It is consistent with existing IMO practice on environmental regulation and fuels, and it is within the IMO's competency. Crucially, there are no legal limits preventing this regulation. Read her piece at tradewindsnews.com. In our TW Plus magazine, I wrote an article exploring the mountain of ESG disclosure requirements that companies, including those in the ocean industries, will face over the next few years. 
chief among them is the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which will require disclosures across many environmental, social, and governance areas. And the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is poised to require that New York-listed companies report on their greenhouse gas footprint. Music for this episode is by Soul Prod Music on Pixabay.